0: In the name of the Father, and the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. Lord, as we finish our discussion, study, and so forth of the Gospel of John, help us to understand the meaning of this Gospel, the meaning of Christ giving himself for our salvation, and the meaning of the resurrection. So we thank you for this time. We thank you for the many graces and blessings that you have given us through the gospel, and we just give you praise and thanksgiving in all things in Jesus' name. I have always mixed emotions with the last class. You know, uh, a relief in some ways that you know, thank God it's over. Uh, and, and yet, I, I really, I really, really miss it because I enjoy teaching, I enjoy being with you, and I enjoy sharing the gifts that God has given me, uh, particularly through the study of the Bible. By all means. Oh, well, you know, as Oh. Thank you. Thank you very much, Muriel. Well, a a new convert of two years, I've enjoyed it very much, and you've brought me closer to the Lord. Well, thank you. That—that's the whole purpose. (laughs) No, but I think most of you have my email or my address. Uh, Phone numbers, no. Today we're going to discuss the resurrection stories. There aren't many, but I think if you sit back and kind of look at them sort of in general, you'll see that God's love is really showing through these stories. Even in the confrontation uh, with the doubting Thomas. Even when Mary Magdalene thinks he's the gardener, there is this touch of love that is shown through the words that are here. And the idea of um, little things, such as when John and Peter run to the uh, tomb to see... for sure that it's empty, as Mary Magdalene says, uh, John steps back and allows Peter to go in first, which is sort of in reference to the fact that Peter is the head of all of the apostles, and John then accepts that and allows him to go ahead. All right, uh, It's sort of uh, a better way of explaining it than saying age before beauty you know <laughs> anyways uh, I think the resurrection stories give us a lot of hope and they give us purpose and meaning because without the resurrection the whole life of Christ would sort of just die flat there are many people who came and in one of the other Gospels it mentions that there were others uh, who came before him uh, preaching, but when they died uh, their followers dispersed and the whole idea of what they represented fell apart. Here we have something that is giving emphasis to the idea of Christ's death and the passion and all of his teachings. It is also an indication of the Father's um, acceptance, you might say, of the whole life and mission of Christ, being successful and being accepted. In other words, as we've often said, Christ took the sins of all mankind upon his back to the cross. And that was part of his role, his plan in God's, uh, his role in God's uh, plan of salvation. And now Christ, uh, or the Father is accepting that uh, and glorifying him for the successful giving of his life for all of us. It required something very unique, very special. Because if it was just, you know, a thank you, a blessing, or whatever, it wouldn't have quite the same thing. But Christ is the first and only person to be resurrected from the dead and glorified in such a way. Now, you might say, well... Lazarus and there were a few other people that were raised from the dead yes that's true but they were raised back to normal life everyday life like we all have like they had before and they had to die again in order to complete their uh, lifespan you might say and enter heaven Christ no more Christ was raised from the dead To live forever. And that gives us hope and meaning to all of what he said. So let's go through some of the details beginning with chapter 20. And talk about some because each of these little stories has its own meaning and purpose. And I'm waiting for one question that I expect to hear, but I won't tell you what it is. (laughs) So on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene, Magdala in this case, because the city that she came from was Magdala. And she sort of inherited the name Magdalene. Uh, as an indication that she was from this city. All right. Mary Magdala came to the tomb early in the morning, while it was still dark, and saw the stone removed from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon and Peter, and to the other disciple, whom Jesus loved, and told them, They have taken the Lord from the tomb, and we don't know where they put him. There's an interesting uh, scene in the movie uh, Jesus of Nazareth. The Franco Zeffirelli uh, picture that came out mm, 20 or 30 years ago where she's banging on the door and they open the little window and she said something about they've taken him and the, the apostles don't believe her. So. And they kind of close the door and they just say, ah, she's an old woman, you know. Uh, It's kind of an interesting story. They have taken the Lord from the tomb, and we don't know where they put him. So Peter and the other disciple ran out and came to the tomb. They both ran, but the other disciple, that is John, ran faster. Well, because he was younger then Peter, and arrived at the tomb first. He bent down and saw the burial cloths there, but he did not go in. When Simon Peter arrived after him, he went into the tomb and saw the burial cloths there, and the cloth that had covered his head, not with the burial cloths, but rolled up in a separate place. Then the two other disciples also went in, And the one who arrived at the tomb first, (laughs) and he saw and believed, for they did not yet understand the scriptures that he had, that that is, he, Jesus, had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples returned home. It sounds so kind of ho-hum, and yet it isn't. Remember that this was written many, many, many years after the resurrection. And so they're putting in there only the basic elements necessary to provide uh, the necessary information. Um, the fact that Mary Magdalene went to the tomb, it doesn't mention uh, or it gives the impression that she went there alone. In, in the second time also, but there were probably somebody with, with her because in that day and age women didn't travel alone, even in uh, small areas like this um, and in the other Gospels it mentions that she was with other women um. <coughs> excuse me <clears throat> the fact that in this case here where peter and john go and john arrives first and he looks into the tomb but he doesn't go in he waits for peter to come they both go in and then they see the burial cloth there remember the uh, scene from lazarus Lazarus was wrapped, that's the way they generally do it. They wrap the body over and over and over, and then they put a separate cloth on top of the face and then continue to wrap. Well, it says the cloth had covered his head, not with the burial cloths, but rolled up in a separate place, indicates Because at first they thought, well, grave robbers got in there. Well, if grave robbers had gotten in there, they would have destroyed, you know, getting the wrappings off and throwing stuff around. The fact that the, uh, the face cover was rolled up neatly and put in a separate place from the other wrappings indicated that it was a deliberate and self-administered, you might say, uh, handling of the burial plots. Now, the other night, when I wasn't uh, feeling so well, I was sitting there thinking about the Shroud of Turin. Uh, you all have heard and know about the Shroud of Turin which is a one piece uh, I was going to say garment, but it's not really a garment. It's just a one piece of cloth, yes, that went the full length from head to toe. Well, that is not what, in most cases, uh, bodies were wrapped in in those days. So there is no way to reconcile uh the Shroud of Turin's appearance with this one. But most people believe that the Shroud of Turin is an actual uh, impression of the body of Christ. Well, I agree with that, but it doesn't figure and fit into this scene here, and there's no way to explain it. Okay. The fact here also is that even though Christ had talked about raising from the dead and had showed through the example of Lazarus that he had the power to do so and he said at the Last Supper that he had the power to give his life which he did but he also had the power to take it up again and this is what he has done. But they didn't, you know, quite understand exactly what that was going to mean and what the significance of it was. Now, we, over 2,000 years of um, church teaching and all of the theories of theologians and great men of the past, we've come to just kind of accept that. But I would suggest that, particularly during Holy Week, you give some thought, some extra thought in what would happen if you were with Peter and John as they entered the tomb. I've actually been in the tomb, the sepulcher in Jerusalem. There's not a lot of room in there, and I'll never forget to this day, and this was many years ago. Uh there was a group of us and we went in and we had to quickly just look around and come out. But then I heard one woman behind me say is his body still in there? <laughs> uh, where have you been lady for 2,000 years? <laughs> yeah, well. Yeah. Oh well. Uh. <laughs> Yeah, uh, there's always somebody that doesn't get the message. You know. Let's go on. The Appearance to Mary Magdalene. But Mary stayed outside the tomb weeping. And as she wept, she bent over into the tomb. See, the, the tomb, it was sort of um, a couple steps down, you might say. And it was a hollowed out part of the large rock room. More of a small cave, you might say. And there was a ledge in there in which the body was laid. And that was the normal way of burying uh, people at the time. Okay. <laughs> and as she wept, she bent over into the tomb and saw two angels sitting there. One at the head and one at the feet, where the body of Jesus had them. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, They have taken my Lord, and I don't know where they've laid him. And when she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus there, but did not know it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you looking for? You see, even though Mary Magdalene knew that Jesus was going to rise from the dead, she, again, like Peter and John, she didn't quite understand how that was going to come about and what it was going to be like. So when it actually did happen, it kind of just went right over her head. She thought it was the gardener and said to him, Sir, if you carried him away, tell me where you've laid him, that I may take him. And Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him, in Hebrew, Rabona, which means teacher. And it's actually an Aramaic term rather than Hebrew. Uh, and it's a sort of familiar way of saying it. Okay? Jesus said to her, stop holding on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go and tell my brothers and tell them, I am going to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Now, there's a lot of meaning in that statement. First of all, stop holding on to me. He's not rebuking her. But what he's really saying is, Stop holding on to the physical appearance of me. Because, as he also tells uh, Thomas later on, it is far greater that you believe in me in faith rather than just through sight. Famous words in a song. Um, but that is what he's really saying. The uh, Greek words used here for holding really mean clinging. In other words, and what she was probably doing was thinking of the person that she has lost through the crucifixion. She is not thinking about the greater person who is God himself returning to that image. And that is what he's doing when he says, I am going to my father and your father, to my God and to your God. In other words, he's not talking about different people. He's sharing the father with humanity. he's saying that his father is also our father. And his God, who he is himself, is also our God. And we should think of it that way. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And he, she says what he told her. <laughs> Excuse me. On the evening of that first day of the week, When the doors were locked, where the disciples were, for fear of the Jews. You see, they are still fearful. And it's still the Jews. Remember, think the authorities. Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. The disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. And said, Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. And then he says, as the Father has sent me, so I now send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. He breathed on them. The idea of breathing is the same word for spirit in in the Greek language. Okay. Ruah. It means breath, spirit, or wind. Okay. And so he is really uh, breathing on them. The whole idea of the Holy Spirit. This is a time of transition now. Because his role is now being completed. And the Holy Spirit's role is now being taken up. Okay. And then he adds something that is very important receive the Holy Spirit, whose sins you forgive are forgiven, them. and whose sins you retain are retained. This is an important statement because if you recall back in some of the other um, gospel readings, Jesus while he was still in the flesh, sent out his uh, apostles and his disciples to preach. And he gave them the power um, to heal and do other kinds of miracles. And they were to preach the word that uh, repent for the kingdom of God is near. But he did not give them the power to forgive sin at that time. It wasn't until after the resurrection that that power was given to mankind through the church. Now, the apostles did not receive it as individual gifts, but collectively as representatives of the church. That's important to understand that. When we go to confession, we are not going to that particular priest, although that would help. If you know then that helps us in our psychological uh confrontation, you know, I might say, or but it is the power of the church that is dispensed through the priest to us. And we are confessing our sins to God through the priest, through the church. Okay. No, not necessarily, um, but we don't know for sure, all right? Um, because there, in one of the other gospels, it talks about Mary, I mean uh, Mary, the mother of Jesus, being in the upper room with them, particularly at Pentecost Sunday, all right. Uh, the other problem is that. All four of the gospel writers use the word apostles and disciples interchangeably, and they're not. Um, All of the apostles were disciples, yes, but not all disciples are apostles, you see. So when they use the words interchangeably, we don't really know if there are a mixture of apostles and other disciples or not. Yes, Dick? I know it's a technical point. Right at the very beginning of the description, it was on the evening was the first day of the week. Yes. That wasn't Saturday. No. Sunday was always the first day of the week, even in the Jewish calendar. No. It was always the last day of the week. Yeah. Well, you're, you're right, but in this particular case, this was given only to the Apostles except if there were other disciples there yes well Thomas wasn't there you're right in on Pentecost Sunday yes which was forty days later or fifty you're right fifty days later um, everybody was given the Holy Spirit yeah says he breathed on them. The other reading will say he breathed in them, is I mean, you know, this time it's on them, but at Pentecost. It means it means oh, it means into them. It means yeah. Them. So maybe that. Well, no, it, it, the, the meaning here is the apostles received the Holy Spirit, you know, on the night of the first resurrection. That was sort of the handing over or the beginning of the handing over of the role from Christ to the Holy Spirit. Yeah. But it was not until Pentecost that everybody and uh, every believer that is, received the Holy Spirit. Uh, people don't realize that prior to this time, Christ's time, uh, the Holy Spirit was not available to individuals to guide and direct them. Now, because it was not his time, it was not his role yet. Uh, it was not given until this time that he became active. And that's the whole idea of that uh, circle illustration that I've given all of you. And some of you, I guess, has it many times. Uh, (laughs) It's important to remember that each of the persons of the Trinity has their specific role in God's plan of salvation and how they exercise that. And they don't step over the lines, you might say, over each, into each other's territory. Uh, and that's important for us to understand. It means in one sense that they are all present whenever anyone of the three persons is acting, and yet they all have their own specific role as well. But this idea of forgiving sin came about the evening of, uh, the first, uh, The evening of the, of the resurrection, you might say, and they did not have that power before that time. I got into a a rather heated discussion with a priest, uh, a few years ago on that very subject, and he was adamant that they had the power even before. And, uh, I just told blank, plainly told him that, uh, he was misinformed.
1: It's
0: a a polite way of saying he was wrong, you know. But um, he was. Uh, I could understand his thinking, but unfortunately that wasn't the way it was. Thomas, called Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came that is the first time so the other disciples said to him we have seen the Lord but he said to them unless I see the marks of the nails in his hands and put my finger into the nail marks and put my hand into his side I will not believe now a week later his disciples were again inside and Thomas was with them Jesus came although the doors were locked, and stood in their midst and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your fingers here in my hands, and bring your hand and put it into my side, and do not be unbelieving, but believe. Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you come to believe because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and have believed. Important statement. You should underline that. Because most of us have not had the opportunity to see Christ. And it's just as well. Because, and one woman asked me, well, if he was God, why couldn't he just stay around, you know, and so we could all hear him or see him. And I thought, well, think about it this way. First of all, he was human. You wouldn't want to have a 2,000-year-old human being walking around. Secondly, if he was uh, here today in the flesh, he would be like the Pope, you might say. And how many of us have had an opportunity to go over to Rome and have a personal meeting with the Pope. I personally have seen three or four Popes, because I used to live there. But that was a little different, and I was among, you know, hundreds of other people at the same time. So there is a lot of practical practicality as to why Jesus had to go back and give us the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is extremely important, um, and we should all pray to the Holy Spirit on a daily basis. Might say to guide us as uh, God would want us uh, to live our lives. Okay, but He's He's not uh, rebuking uh, Thomas. He's just saying here. <laughs> Blessed are those who have not seen and have believed. In the same way uh, that he talked to Mary Magdalene. Uh, Don't cling to me. Don't cling to the physical appearance but rather get into your head that I am always with you in spirit. And that's far more important than just in physical presence. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples that are not written in this book. But these are written that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that through this belief you may have life in his name. That whole little paragraph at the top of page 103, you should circle that because that's kind of a summary of the whole gospel. And if you put that together with the prologue, that is the first 17 verses in chapter 1, if you put that together with the prologue, it, it sort of completes The whole idea of this gospel. So I would suggest that sometime uh, in the week or so before Easter that you do that. Go back and read the prologue of this gospel and then add on to it those particular words in verse 31. But these are written that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that through this belief, you may have life in his name. Very, very important. And that apparently was the original ending of this gospel. Many people believe that chapter 21 was added on later. And whether it was or not, I think it is a beautiful chapter because it kind of rounds up the whole idea of the love that Christ has for each one of us. After this... Uh, we don't know exactly after this what that means, but Jesus revealed himself again to his disciples at the Sea of Tiberias. Now, the previous scenes were in Jerusalem. Tiberias is about 80 miles north uh, of Jerusalem, and it is the Sea of Galilee, the Sea of Tenezareth. Uh, it's been called many, many things over the years. And the word, or the city of Tiberias is on the western coast. About halfway up, you might say. So he revealed himself in this way. Together were Simon Peter, Thomas, called Didymus. Didymus in this case means twin. Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee. Zebedee's sons, that is James and John, and two other disciples. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. Remember that they didn't have any specific direction, you know, as to you're going here and you're going there and you're going to go up here and you're going to say this, etc. There was no blueprint. There was no guidance written down for what these apostles were going to do after Christ's resurrection. They were told to wait. Uh, for the Holy Spirit, but that was it. So, what are they going to do? You know, they were, for a while, they were sort of locked in the upper room for fear of the Jews. Uh, but now, they've sort of returned back to their old lifestyle. They did have to eat. They did have to take care of themselves. And they probably had responsibilities. Um, so, you, you can't blame them for... Wanting to kind of go back to something that they felt was normal. (laughs) Simon Peter says, I'm going fishing. And they said to him, we'll also come with you. So they went out and got into a boat. But that night they caught nothing. When it was already dawn, Jesus was standing on the shore. But the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. Now they didn't think he was the gardener like Mary Magdalene did, but in the same way, they weren't sure exactly who he was. Remember, he was in a glorified state. And so it was not, uh, it was not just the old Jesus that, uh, they saw. Uh, This was a new person. Jesus said to them, children, Now, a lot of people are kind of put off by that term. And John uses it a lot, not only here, but in his uh, letters. That is a term of endearment, you might say, but is common in the Jewish language of this time period. Uh, So please don't get turned off by that. Children, have you caught anything to eat? And they answered him, No. And so he said to them, Cast the net over the right side of the boat, and you'll find something. So they cast it, and were not able to pull it in because of the number of fish. So the disciples whom Jesus loved, the disciple whom Jesus loved, said to Peter, It is the Lord. Remember, Simon Peter, or rather John, uh, was... Excuse me. (laughs) I don't want to drip all over the book (laughs) here. The apostle whom Jesus loved said, It is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he tucked in his garment, for he was lightly clad, and jumped into the sea. The other disciples came to the boat, for they were not far apart from shore, only about a hundred yards, dragging the net with the fish. And when they climbed out on shore they saw a charcoal fire with fish on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish you just caught. So Peter went over and dragged the net ashore, full of one hundred and fifty three large fish. Now, before we get into a discussion Don't ask me to explain the 153. (laughs) Numerologists and theologians and everybody has for centuries tried to explain that. Howard? I I don't don't remember where I read it, but uh, somewhere it said that the nations of the day Okay. Well, you know, that, you know, that that's as good as any explanation. I don't know what about, but I don't mean it's good. <laughs> yeah, that's as good. As, you know, that would repre- that would in a way represents all humanity. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, that's as good as an explanation but, you know, theologians and everyone has tried to explain that and nobody's come up with anything concrete. Okay, um, let's not get too worked up about the 153 even though there were so many the net was not torn and Jesus said to them come have breakfast and none of the disciples dared to ask him who are you because they realized it was the Lord and Jesus came over and took the bread and gave it to them and in like manner the fish this is how the third time, this is now the third time, Jesus was revealed to his disciples after being raised from the dead. (coughs) 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 When they had finished the breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? It's interesting that he's calling him Simon rather than Peter or Petrus the rock. Peter said to him Yes, Lord, you know I love you. He said to him Feed my lambs." He then said to him a second time Simon, son of John do you love me? He said to him Yes, Lord, you know I love you said to him, Tend my sheep. He said to them a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was distressed that he had said to him a third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Now, of course, we all know Now, that this was sort of a way to reconcile Peter's three times denial. And it allows us to see how Jesus, now as God, forgives Peter. Because it was sort of a something done out of fear and not of not out of denial of who Christ is. Um, and in a way it's also of restoring Peter's um, prominence, you might say, as far as the apostles are concerned. Uh is a gentle way, it's actually a loving way of showing uh, how this is done. Well, uh, I, is there, there is, to my knowledge, there is no meaning uh, or intended difference. No. Do you think Yeah, this is well, in a, in a way, in a way, it, it sort of balances, yeah, you know, and, and that's what Penance is really trying to do, is, is to write the scales um, or, you know, balance the scales. Um, in a way, yeah, uh, I don't think it was intended to kind of uh, you know, screw them to the wall or anything, but uh, yeah, it was a form of it was embarrassing. It was something that he had to, to accept. And he did. Okay. Any other questions? Yes. I wonder if it's not the case of them not recognizing Jesus. They knew him so well. They had a different appearance. I mean, yeah. he had a different appearance each time. That he appeared again. Probably, it? probably. you. that we will not recognize Jesus at least? Oh, I'm recognize sure. Jesus. I'm sure when we see him at the pearly gates, we will recognize him. You know, uh, that's a kind of an interesting question. Um, there are a number of pictures of what people think Christ looked like. I have one, the the traditional, very formal. I don't know whether I have a copy of it in here or not. Uh, I used to have so many of those holy cards in here after people... Funerals that, no, I don't have one in here. But it's the tra- traditional, very uh, Stoic uh, picture of Christ, you know. But there are no pictures of what Christ looks like after he's gone to heaven. Because we have no way of knowing. And it's probably different for every person. But uh, no. I, I really can't give you a, a better answer because we have no way of knowing. Yes? Yes. Jesus in the good shepherd Yes, very good point Why not when he said children and he Maybe he didn't use the same voice we don't know Yeah Yeah, you know, the Gospels, particularly, John, leave us with a lot of questions. And that's a good thing. And that's a good thing, yes. Because if it were like, you know, a good novel, well, I've read that, you know, I can put it down and forget it. Um, This is a Gospel, and the others are too to some degree, but I think this one is one that always leaves you wanting more. More answers. More information. Um, it's it's sort of a bare bones gospel, but it is just packed with so much information. Yes. I'm glad you read it. Yes. And according to he was not Good-looking man, and I believe that. I think he was so much, so human that he was one of us. He was imperfect as a child and as an adult male. Yes. Until after his glorification, his resurrection, and glorification, and I think that's part of his too. Good point. Very good point. Yes. Well, you no, you're you're right. Uh, According to uh, Isaiah 53, as you've said, he was a very normal-looking Jewish boy. Probably small, slender, uh, dark skin, and so forth. He wasn't, you know, the, the picture that I have, um, beautifully framed and all of that, uh, looks more like uh, an English person with a, a very uh, prominent, uh, English nose, you know, and so forth, and high forehead, uh, very light skin, good-looking guy, you know. Uh, that's probably not what Jesus looked like. Yeah. Uh, people at that age, in that particular culture, uh, were generally small. Uh, dark skin, uh, average-looking, dark, straight hair, that kind of thing. Yeah. But after the resurrection, he probably looked, uh, a lot different. Does it implied that Jesus appeared to carry only if he was a disciple? There's to say that he would not have appeared That was the question I was after! <laughs> Thank you, Gene. Bingo! You you get you get. That was the question. I have, every time I've taught the Gospel of John, particularly, and the others too, but mostly John. Why did Jesus not appear to his mother? Okay. Well, we don't know that he didn't, and most likely. He did, but the meetings were private. And you can understand that. They were not necessary for the purpose of this gospel. So, my feeling is that he appeared to her before anyone, but it was a very private meeting, and that it was not necessary for this gospel. (laughs) But, does that satisfy everyone? Yeah. No. You know, it's, it's, it's very reasonable to understand that he would have appeared to his mother. Um, and I'm sure he did. But, again, it wasn't necessary for this particular gospel. Okay. I think the rebuke or the mild rebuke, slap on the hand, you might say, uh, to Peter, but the reconciliation here um, is a way of giving us courage to seek ourselves forgiveness from Christ. And whenever we have doubts um, or have committed a sin in any in any way shape or form um, we should not be frightened in such a way or discouraged uh, or embarrassed to the point where we uh, fail to seek reconciliation uh, I think that this little story is a fitting answer and a fitting ending you might say to the gospel of John did, he, did his mother, did Mary, uh, know what he was going to be like when he come back? I don't know. I don't think so. Then it was a surprise to her? No. Uh, no. I think that she knew all along that his death was not a final thing. But as to, as to what the specifics were, no. I think that she had to find out like everyone else no in fact God will put doubts into our minds for us to get started on searching for an answer but to just leave the doubts sit there and fester is wrong um, no doubts in themselves are not wrong but if we just leave them there and don't do anything about it uh, that can be wrong yeah but Often, God will put doubts into our minds just to get us started on searching for the answer. Right. Yeah. Yes, Cora? Well, thank you. Thank you, Cora. I think, I think that is very, very well put. Yes. Uh, for those of you who may not have heard, Cora is saying that rather than thinking of Jesus as looking like any one specific person or type, uh, we should think that Jesus is often shown to us in the faces of those around us. And that's a very, very good thing and a good way to look at it. Because Jesus can be um, among any of us. And I think I told you that story about uh, the Jewish abbot, and, I mean, the, the, the Jewish rabbi and the, and the Catholic abbot getting together and talking about the demise of monks in the monastery and he was concerned about what he was going to do and asked the rabbi what he thought and uh, if there was anything that uh, he might suggest. And the rabbi thought for a minute, said, the only thing that I can think of about is that one of your existing monks is Christ himself. And that really kind of struck the abbot and thought a bit. When he went back, he kept thinking about that. And so he gathered his few remaining monks together in the monastery, and he said, I just had it on very good authority that uh a Jewish man, yeah. Uh that one of you is Jesus Christ. And they've sort of all sat there for a few minutes stunned. And then uh, the abbot says, Well you are dismissed and uh but after that the men went off thinking about that, and as they would meet, they were a little more cheerful to each other, a little more helpful to each other, thinking that maybe the guy sitting next to me is Christ. Uh, or, you know, can I help you, Brother So and So? Oh, let me open the door for you, Brother So and So. And the love that developed out of this spirit of thinking that Christ was among them, was that he was among them in the spirit of love. And that love began to grow and show not only through these men, but through the neighborhood of the monastery. And eventually the word got out that this was a monastery full of love, and eventually over a period of time, younger men started coming in. And this actually happened in 19, the late 1940s in the monastery of Gethsemane in Louisville, Kentucky, after Thomas Mur- excuse me, after Thomas Merton wrote his first book the seven-story mountain. It was a monastery that was actually dying. And when he wrote that book, it started to spread like wildfire. And within a few years that monastery, which I don't remember exactly how many monks that it supported or originally was built for, but had, it was filled to capacity and had a waiting list. Yeah. And it was the idea of Christ in the spirit of love was there. Very important. Okay. Any other questions? Well, so ends our discussion on the Gospel of John. I hope you got something out of it. Uh, I always do. When I teach, I always think I learn a little more than the students. But now, uh, I'd like to hear from you on what you would like to discuss or study in the next round of lessons that will not begin until the middle of September. Uh, just Millie? What's that? Christology. Well, Christology... Billy asked, could I teach Christology? That's a very broad subject. Um, You might say the Gospel of John is probably as a condensed version of Christology that a person could get to. Okay? Um, The this book here that I have uh, on the Gospel of John is a Christology. Christology is, just as it implies, a study of Christ. Okay. Yeah, the wordology is a study of Christ. All right. And this book would be as close as you could get. But it is so detailed. And, you know, this is more than twice the size of... Uh, of this, and this does not contain the scriptures as this one does. So you're talking about at least three times the volume. And it goes into a, a great deal of uh, theological detail, which I think was, was excellent for, for my benefit. But I'm not so sure I could keep uh, you all awake for ten weeks for on that. Uh, yes, June? So you can't you can't do Kings without doing First and Second Samuel because you know they're yeah it all goes together yeah Louisa did you have a you said Genesis right all right wait just just a moment. Well, we just did uh, Romans and Galatians here. Uh, Revelation. Now, Revelation I cannot teach anymore. Uh, it is far more difficult than any other book in the Bible, and it requires that you have a real good understanding of the rest of the Bible. And it is it is really uh, a very difficult book. I have taught it several times. Yes, What Catholic letter? Uh, now the. Okay, we did that a couple of years ago. Uh, the one I would recommend if you want letters would be this one and Hebrews. The reason is that this is a very modern Letter that applies to us today. This is one that takes into a lot of the Old Testament and sort of brings some of the Old Testament teachings and spirit into the New Testament and reconciles the two together. Um, that would be worthwhile. Um, but let's hear from Marty, did you have another? Jeremiah. Oh, Jeremiah. I love Jeremiah. He was a crybaby, but he... <laughs> yeah. 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 Oh, Lord, I didn't want to be a prophet. I didn't want to do this. I didn't want to do that. Huh? Jonah, yeah, Jonah was a crybaby too. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, well. But you see, Jonah is a story. It is not history. Okay. Many people don't realize that, that many of the books of the Old Testament were stories, not history. Um, and I've said that a few times. Oh. People would get all so upset, you know, and I thought, well, now, if you really think about it and you read the book of Job, for example, you know, who was there to take down dictation, what God said to Jonah, uh, to uh, Job? Or who was there when the three friends tried to persuade uh, Job, you know, that he was nuts you know, and so forth? No, 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 no. Those are stories. They're inspired, they're good, they have a moral point, but they're not history. Okay. Yes, uh, see, Betty? Is that true of in the Well, <laughs> women in the Old Testament. Uh very controversial subject yeah. <laughs> depending on who's teaching so. us uh, many of the books of the Old Testament Ruth, Esther, Judith those are stories not history they bring in a lot of history but the characters in most cases, are fictional. But they, again, are there for a reason because they are inspired. They have a good moral point. So I'm not putting them down in any way. It's just you have to understand the difference. Well, it is is mentioned in many ways. Uh, The other problem with that would be It depends a lot on people's interpretations, you know. So you wouldn't get any one person to be able to do it accurately that would be acceptable to everyone. Um, There are so many. That's why I asked you to read um, Isaiah 53, because that is one of the places very much... uh, that brings out a, a lot of the details. And also Psalm 22. Uh, that gets right down to some very specifics. So you have uh, a, a lot of Old Testament writings that refer to the Messiah in general. Um, so I don't know how we could ever come to uh, any conclusions. Uh, Dick? I believe the Jewish book, the last book, the Maccabees, did, did that have any interest? Well, the book of the Maccab- the book of the Maccabees, Maccabees one and two, is the story of the Jewish war against the Greeks in the second century B.C. And the word Maccabees comes from um, Julius Maccabeus the family that headed up the militia, the Jewish militia that routed the Greeks out of uh, out of Israel uh, in the second century and rededicated the temple it is very confined to a very small period of time and really doesn't bring in a lot of um, Jewish culture. Well, no, I shouldn't say it that way. It does bring in a lot of Jewish culture, but that's as far as it goes. Uh, it's an interest. It's an interesting story, but um, I don't think we would learn a great deal of, from it. Yeah. So. Alright, uh, Rita? Well, you now but... well, no, I didn't say all of the Old Testament, just certain books of the Old Testament. Okay, no, but as far as the book of Genesis, the book of Genesis is, was, uh, written around the 5th century BC. Long after Exodus, Numbers, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy, it was written to give a beginning when the Old Testament was being put together in the form that we have now. Before that, it was all just separate scriptures. All right? And scripture, remember, scripture was not started out as Holy Scripture. Scripture started out as history. And if they didn't like what it was written, people would take it and revise it later to what they thought it should be. So, the early books of the Bible were revised many times. And in the 5th century, by the the priest Ezra, it was finally put together um, and then added to uh, over the next few centuries. And in the second century BC it was then brought together as we have it today. But Genesis is an interesting uh book, and maybe someday we could do that. Uh but it was brought together um and in a very inspired way, but from a lot of myths and legends uh and Uh, traditions of the Jewish people at that time. It brought into existence um, the whole idea, the whole story of Noah and uh, the Ark and the Tower of Babel and so forth. That was not originally part of Jewish culture. It was part of uh, the culture of some of the places where the Jewish people had been incarcerated, and that is Syria and Babylon, Babylonia. Right. Uh, but somebody took that and put it all together in a very inspired way, and I think uh, we can learn probably more about God the Father from the first 11 chapters of Genesis than uh, we can on all the rest of the Old Testament. But you gotta be very careful when you read that not to take it literally. Okay. The seven days of, or the six days of creation, uh, we cannot take that as 24 hour periods. Alright, six 24 hour periods. No, you cannot do that. Okay. It was just their way of putting things in there. The whole idea of the Cain and Abel story, the Tower of Babel, uh, Noah and the Ark, are to indicate how uh, languages came about and how sin progressed uh, exponentially, you might say, after the sin of Adam and Eve. Um, and there are other reasons for that. Okay, that's that's fine. Nerida just mentioned that there's a television program starting. Easter Sunday uh to take up the life of of the church after the resurrection be careful uh Hollywood has a way of uh exploiting a lot of biblical events um, without coming any to any conclusions without making any definite statements and you can't really do that well, I would be very concerned, and I find that I've looked at a lot of those, and uh, I go away kind of turned off. Yes? Well, I, the Riley, is that the Riley book? Well, oh, I thought that was terrible. The Riley book. Uh, the Riley book does not focus on anything other than the natural, normal, everyday life of Christ and then brings in no miracles, there's no theology, uh, it is just sort of a story. But it then brings in a lot of stuff that is totally unnecessary and I think... Uh, it is there for commercial purposes only. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I I did read it uh, because you know, of its notoriety, you might say. Um, but I did not think much of it and I would not recommend it. I wanted to say, but there's there No, there's no spirituality in it whatsoever. And all of the discussions about the Roman emperors uh, could have been left out altogether. Except that they did have a somewhat of a historical influence on the times, but not on Christ. Because the Romans didn't really do much um, to Christ until the Jewish people manipulated them into crucifying him. So, um, killing Jesus... I thought was a real bummer. Okay. All right. Let's uh, let's end our session and a time together with a prayer. In the name of the Father, the Son, of the Holy Spirit. Lord, I thank you. We thank you for the graces and the benefits that you have given us through these sessions. We ask that you continue to help us in our faith. Help us to be the loving people that you want us to be. Give us the strength and the grace when we get upset or when we are offended to look upon the cross and think that we helped to put you there. Help us then to be faithful to you by loving others. and Give us the strength and the grace to do so. And we thank you for this time together. We thank you and praise you in all things.